Hey, so good to see you guys. We're going to be uh, finishing up our series uh, through the book of Jonah. This morning we'll be in Jonah chapter 4. If you've got a Bible with you, you can uh, take a minute and find that. I was thinking as we were singing Reckless Love, I was standing over there just um, singing and thinking theologically about uh, the pursuing nature of God's love. And, and the Lord brought to, to mind a, a friend of uh, mine, uh, I spent a lot of time with when we lived in California and we were getting ready to move back to Texas and even though we'd been on vacation together they had he and his wife and kids had spent a lot of time at our home we'd spent a lot of time uh, at their home um, we'd traveled together we they'd been a, a significant part of the church we started there um, he'd never come to faith in Christ he just was still antagonistic toward toward God and so I thought I would take uh, one more gentle run at him maybe a very direct run at him before we moved back from Texas. So I went over to his house, and uh, he was outside cleaning a boat or something. And, uh, but I was, I was grateful that he was there, that he was outside. And so I went up, and, and we spent uh, over an hour, uh, maybe two hours, just talking about God and the gospel and the nature of who we are as human beings. And when I got back in my truck and left, uh, the only hope I had for Nick was the God that we just sang about. Was the God whose love is, is, by every human standard, reckless. It is relentless. It is fierce. It pursues those far from him. I had no hope at all that one day Nick would just go, you know what, I, just, I do want Jesus. Yes, Lord. And so even as I was standing over here, I just said, God, go, go get him. Go get him. Overwhelm him like you did Saul on the road to Damascus. No tracks were given. No Jesus was shared. The risen Savior just showed up and blew up Saul's life and changed him forever. Turned him into a trophy of his grace. So maybe you've got someone like that in your life this morning. I don't know. Maybe you are that person uh, sitting here this morning. But that's where my hope is for Nick. And that's uh, ultimately where hopefully all of our hope rests is in the character and person of God. Um, in 1999, January of, of 99, a, a new show aired that would forever change the landscape of television. It was called The Sopranos. It's called The Sopranos, and it was a, a television show based on the Italian mob um, set in Jersey and New York City. So realistic, um, I read uh, articles a few years ago about this, so realistic um, that, that actual mob members were caught on FBI recordings talking about who was advising the show um, and, and allowing them to have such an inside look into the life of the mob. There was an article a couple of years ago that came out in the Washington Post that caught my eye. Um, the title of it uh, was this, How the Sopranos Changed TV Forever and Us as Well. Well, I think like, if you're a television walk or you like cinema or movies or, or television or how they're made, you may know already that Sopranos uh, definitely seem to have changed uh, television forever. Uh, and so I agreed with that part of the title, but I doubted very seriously that it changed any of us forever or at all, right? Uh, but had it not been for the Sopranos, we likely would not have had anything like Sons of Anarchy or uh, Game of Thrones or Justified or... Breaking Bad or Boardwalk Empire, these television shows that have some of the fabric and the depth um, that only existed in movies beforehand. 
Um, James Gandolfini now passed away, but he played Tony Soprano, the, the, the lead, the top bill lead actor in the television series. And he was asked one time if he thought after um, they shot the, the first episode, uh, if he had any idea that it was going to be the hit that it became. And he said, heavens no. He said, no, I, n- I never imagined that the public would want to watch a television show with a fat, balding Italian guy as the lead. So he said, I was as shocked as anyone else was. But it's how The Sopranos ended that caused as much chatter as the, the miniseries the TV show ran. Some of you have been avid fans of a TV show, and you get to um, the last episode of the last season, and you wonder, don't you, if that's going to do the entire series justice. Often it does not. But uh, the Sopranos ending was very, very interesting. It shows Tony Soprano and his wife and his son. The the family's been through a lot of of turmoil, but they're sitting in a a diner. And his uh, daughter, Meadow, uh, is coming in. She's been at college, so she's coming back. She's coming into the diner um, to join the family for dinner. Um, and at first, you, you see Meadow walking in, and then you see uh, the camera changes to, to Meadow's point of view. As she's going in the diner, you see Tony and his wife and their son sitting there. And then the camera shifts back to Tony's point of view as if you're Tony. And Meadow's walking in, and as she gets close, it just goes black, and that's it. That's the end. And it has caused people for years to, to, to um, try to get out of David Chase, the show's creator, what the meaning of it was. was what, did somebody sneak up behind Tony and shoot him? And that's, just, that's what you experience in life and death. You're just here one minute and you're the next. Chase will never, will never say, we don't know. Jonah has that kind of abrupt ending. It just sort of ends. It just kind of ends. And God leaves it to us to continue to think and meditate and have our hearts wrapped around what it is that is happening throughout the book of Jonah. Jonah is an incredibly gospel-centered book. It's about God's redemption, God's restoration. It's about seeing uh, the people of God move from religious understandings of who God is and who people are to a gospel-centered view and understanding. Let's read straight through the chapter, and then we're going to go back and work through it just a little bit. And I want to make a few observations about what happens in our lives as we're called to be on mission by God. Look at Jonah chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Actually, let me back up. I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 10, starting out. When God saw what they did, if you were here last week, you remember that the Assyrians in Nineveh repented, and revival broke out there after Jonah preached. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What a whiner Jonah is. But the Lord replied, 
is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. The end. And also many animals. I can tell you this, Jonah's the only book in the Bible that ends with the word animals. It's interesting why, and I would explain it, except I don't know. I don't understand why the emphasis here on many animals in Nineveh, but it's there. And I, I want us to understand something that we see as Jonah engages. Jonah experienced a kind of death at sea in the midst of the storm as he's swallowed, sinking by a large fish. And he's in the, the belly of the fish. And Jonah preaches the gospel to himself. Jonah is reminded of who God really is and why Jonah existed in the first place. And there's a kind of resurrection back to new life. Jonah spit out onto dry land. He gets eager about doing what God's called him to do. And he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. But the call to mission reveals where your heart really is. The call to mission reveals where your heart really is. You will not be on mission with God long. You will not be engaging God's gospel-centered mission on earth long before you begin to get a better, clearer, deeper picture of who you really are. And this is what we see here with Jonah. Verse 10 tells us that, that they repented. God relents. It should be a time of celebration. But verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Jonah, this seemed wrong to him, and he became angry. He's ticked off that God shows mercy and grace to the Assyrians. In verse 2, as we saw several weeks ago, is the key to the, the entire book. Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't want to see God extend grace and mercy to this category of people. And if you and I are honest, we have those categories of people in our lives. We have persons that we think maybe are too far gone, and if they're not, they just should be, right? We don't want to see God's grace extended to them. We love absorbing it, but we don't want to see it extended beyond that. We prefer special treatment 
just not extended to other people. How many of you have ever flown, like not on Southwest, but you, you got on the plane and you have to pass through first class, right? Going back to where the peasants sit. Anybody been there? Like you're walking through first class kind of looking around. There's something in your heart that just says, what a bunch of losers. Probably none of these people love Jesus with their tiny little bottles of booze and their briefcases and their neck pillows, their soft hands, well-lotioned. I mean, there's just something in the human spirit that says that. Now, you get back to the back and someone gifts you first class, you're like, right on, going up with the winners, right? But there's something about it that, that grates on us. It's part of the fallen human nature. Jonah loved receiving God's grace. He didn't so much want to see it extended to his enemies. But it's a great reminder that sometimes there's a ton of religious-looking behavior. Remember, Jonah was a prophet. Jonah had been preaching in Nineveh. But things were not as they seemed behind the curtain. Jonah's heart was still struggling to move from religion to gospel. And he was upset. He was upset because his preaching worked. Like, I don't understand that. There are a lot of Sundays I drive home thinking, what am I doing? This is not working, right? Jonah has this big revival break out, and he's bummed out about it. We are complex, fallen creatures. I um, heard a story this week, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who I often quote, that great 19th century British preacher, probably uh, certainly the, the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world from the last probably 500 years maybe last thousand years but he would have uh, uh, people would take notes of his sermons as he preached in the metropolitan tabernacle in london uh, and then he had a, a group of secretaries that would write them up and they would bring them to him and he, he'd read through them and edit and make changes no this is what you heard this is what i said or what i meant to say right uh to get it accurate and then uh, those were were printed back in the day and sold all across western europe and to the united states for a penny each a penny each actually made him a great sum of money now he was not a money hungry guy he gave uh, away huge amounts across his lifetime to charity and founded uh, a college for preachers and orphanages for children and all kinds of great things but he encouraged other preachers that maybe didn't have the time or didn't have the skill he had just he said man just take them and use them if you want right uh we serve the same god god will do what he will do but spurgeon and you'll hear more about this uh, in our next series spurgeon wrestled a lot from depression um all of his adult life he could never get away from it he lived a couple of hours outside of london on kind of a, a country estate and he dropped in one day when he was uh, especially melancholy, as he would say, battling depression. He dropped in on a little country church, and he just made his way in, and he sat down at the back on a Sunday morning when he wasn't at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And the preacher began to preach. And as he preached, Spurgeon said he felt his spirits lifted. Right, And the melancholy began to go, and the, the light of God's goodness and mercy and person begin to flood into his heart and mind again and drive out false thinking. And toward the end of the sermon, Spurgeon realized the man was preaching one of his sermons. And he went up to him after, and the guy was kind of embarrassed. Spurgeon said, no, no, that's, that's why we print them. I'm, I'm happy. I just wanted to come meet you and thank you and tell you what God did to me while I was sitting in here. I went home and told Sharon, that's how you know you're the man. 
right? When your own sermon lifts your spirits. I don't know that I've had that happen maybe one day. What didn't lift Jonah's spirit? Jonah went down again. He really still did not understand grace. He didn't understand the gospel. He'd had a, a moment in the belly of the big fish, but it hadn't become a daily growing reality. And ultimately, and I don't want you to miss this, ultimately Jonah's issue was not with the Ninevites, it was with God. Ultimately, every issue you and I have with people is not a horizontal issue, it's a vertical issue. You want to get your marriage right, get your life right with God. You want to get your friendships right, get your life right with God. You want to get your relationships at work right, get your life right with God. It doesn't mean those things are going to instantaneously work out. Don't hear me saying that. But what it will do is position you to receive wisdom and discernment and guidance from God. It will position you to see the other people in your life the way that God sees them. Instead of the way that you and I see them in our fallen nature as objects to promote ourselves. What's amazing here, listen to, to Jonah as he talks about who God is in the second half of verse 2. He says, I knew that you are. Now, I want you to listen to this as you think about how you view God. Not how you would tell other people you view God, but how you really view God. Holy Spirit, help us here. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Two words frame the, 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 the second half of verse 2. Gracious and abundant. That God is gracious in His love and His mercy. He is abundant in His love and His mercy. And what's interesting is this is a, a verbal picture, an image that's being uh, created by the writer of, of Jonah to, um, to portray the womb. It, what, what the writer of Jonah is saying to us here is that God cares for us, cares for his people, and even seeks to care for those far from him as he pursues them the way that a healthy womb cares for a developing infant inside of it. This word abundant is this picture of wave after wave after wave of undeserved mercy and love flowing into the lives of the people of God. It's an overwhelming love that if you've never really experienced, I pray by God's mercy, you will. That you'll be overcome by it one day. As D.L. Moody was when he was walking the streets of New York City after great calamity had fallen on the city of Chicago, Moody's home city, and he was just there to be refreshed and renewed. And all of a sudden, he experienced the most incredible joy. He said, it almost immobilized me as I was overcome with the magnitude of God's love for me. Wave after wave of God's grace. Some of you know... Uh, Mine is Sharon's story uh, of walking through infertility and doctors telling us that we just we weren't going to be able to conceive 
um, naturally to have uh, children biologically. So God turned our hearts, God turned Sharon's heart, and I followed to adoption quite naturally. And, and so we were walking down that road. We went through the adoption process, in, uh, application process with Buckner, a, a Baptist Children's a Foster and Adoption uh, Service in Texas, and got in the book to adopt. And so had, they had these couples' profiles in the book, um, and, and you're just waiting on, on a birth mom to choose you, right? And so they said to us at that time, hey, you're, you guys are young, you're educated, you're going to look really good to a lot of our super young birth moms. Are you ready? And we said, yes, we're ready, right? Months went by and the phone didn't ring, and then all of a sudden Sharon says, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. Of course, I'm like, are you sure? Right? I mean, this is not like the things I say where I'm thinking out loud. Uh, she said, no, I'm, yes, I'm sure. Uh, and, and God gave us our first biological child, JC, our daughter, oldest daughter, came along. And we were so grateful. We were overwhelmed by God's grace and his mercy and his goodness. And let me, I have to say this. If you're in here this morning or you're online with us and you're walking through infertility, I know how much you hate these stories. And I know the pain of these stories. We heard them. In fact, I got prideful. I was like, that's not going to be our story. We're going to adopt, right? God just does as God pleases. Um, so we were overwhelmed with God's goodness, right? And then not very long later, Sharon said, guess what? I'm pregnant again. I was like, again, God is so good. He did this again just because he can. And God gave us a son. A few months later, we had moved to Southern California following God's call in our life living sort of as home missionaries in the U.S., raising salary support to start a new church, no family, no friends there yet, not even finished raising salary support. It was Father's Day, 2008. And Sharon got me an amazing gift, which should have tipped me off to something. Because everyone brings strength to the marriage. My strength is great gifts, Right? So she gives me this great gift, maybe even two or three of them. Now, with years of marriage, I'd be suspicious now. But then I was like, look at this. And then she slides a card over. I should have known then. Not just great gifts, but a card. And I open it, and she said, so you're getting pretty good at this dad thing, and that's good, because now there's going to be three. And all of a sudden... There was not waves of joy coming over me. But I was like, what have you done? <laughs> and my prayer was not, thank you, God, but this has got to stop. <laughs> we can't do this every 21 or 22 months. But we, we often underestimate God's passionate love toward us. And this is the real battle in the Bible Belt. All across the Bible Belt in a culture steeped in religion and Christian culture is that it's so hard for our hearts to truly hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that is not based in our effort or works or merit and to understand the deep, passionate, fierce love of God for his redeemed and for those still far from him that he's pursuing. But I would tell you, if you look at verse 3, some of us 
are in here this morning and we thank God that we haven't always gotten what we asked for. Anybody there with me this morning? Look at Jonah verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Any of you look back on someone that you thought you wanted to marry and you prayed, oh God, and they turned out to be a real psycho or something? And you're so grateful now that God in his sovereign goodness said, no, I'm going to, right, you're going to dodge a bullet there. I mean, I just, I want us to know and to hear this morning that you, you are not held by your faithfulness to God. You are held by God's faithfulness to you. You're going to go through moments and days and seasons of unfaithfulness. You're going to walk through periods in your life where you're saying no to God where you're battling with sin, but you're not battling very much with it. It is not our faithfulness that holds us. It is God's faithfulness to us. Look at verse 4. The Lord replies to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? Now, this is not because God is afraid of angry prayer, right? God needs nothing. He's not disturbed by our honesty have you ever read the book of psalms like i think sometimes as a a modern linear westerner that the author of psalms must have needed medication or he would have organized it better happy psalms here sad psalms here angry psalms at the end but that's not how life works is it it's just not how life works days are up and down weeks are up and down God's trying to get through Jonah's behavior to Jonah's heart. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. He made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's still hoping maybe that God's judgment would fall. He's like, God, I know that you are just and right and holy. I know that you will balance all accounts. I just want to see it when it happens. So I'm just going to post myself outside the city here. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to build myself a little shelter because it's the desert. And I'm going to see if maybe your mercy will run out and your judgment will fall. But it doesn't. Verse 6 says that the Lord provided. He provides a leafy plant that grows up over Jonah's man-made shelter and provides even more shade. And then he provides a worm, doesn't he? And the worm takes away the plant, much to Jonah's chagrin. He delighted in the plant. Sometimes you need a plant and sometimes you need a worm. And God knows where you are. Some of you are plant people this morning. And some of you are worm people. But God knows where we are. He provides a worm. And then he provides a scorching east wind. And the sun blazes down on Jonah. This is not to punish Jonah. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation left for those of us who are in Christ. There's training. There's preparation. There is not condemnation. God's trying to get Jonah's attention. He's trying to get through the hardness of Jonah's heart so that Jonah can see the truth about who God is and who Jonah is. God's heart for all people. Now don't miss this. If you look back at chapter 1 verse 16, chapter 1 verse 17, this word provided or appointed, your translation may say, is found there as well. 
God provided or appointed a big fish to swallow Jonah. God, you can trust that God will give you what you need in the moment. That's so easy to say. It is so hard to rest in. But it is biblical truth. That's why it's important for us to know that our feelings are always real. They're just not always trustworthy. To build your life on your feelings is to build it on the sand instead of on the Word of God, which can cut through the feelings and bring truth to us. God said to Jonah in verse 9, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? I love Jonah. Jonah's still, he's sticking with his guns, right? He's like, it is right for me to be angry about the plant. In fact, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, I'm not God, but my patience would have been running out by then. I'd have been like, very well then. And some of the truest wrath that God ever allows to enter into the lives of human beings is for him to just back away and say, so be it. And he doesn't do this. He sticks with Jonah. But I, I, wanna, I don't want us to miss this this morning, that chronic self-focus, chronic self-focus reveals a heart still enslaved by sin. Chronic self-focus reveals a heart still enslaved by sin. It doesn't matter what you've confessed. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter what place or position um, you hold in the church. Chronic self-focus absolutely reveals that our hearts are still enslaved to sin. That the chief person we are concerned about is ourselves, our image, our advancement. And it can lead to this slow spiral down into a kind of miserable up and down existence. A form of depression and anxiety, not the kind of clinical stuff that you and I need to reach outside and get help for, but the kind that wakes up every day centered on ourselves, expecting the day to go as I plan it for me and my glory. And when it doesn't, we fall apart. We see Jonah all the time through the book. He's doing this, isn't he? He's up, he's down, he's left, he's right. He still at the end has this chronic self-focus. And it's a reminder to us, a sobering one, that just because you had a genuine gospel experience yesterday doesn't mean you won't need to battle your sin today. It doesn't mean you won't need to submit your thoughts, your emotions, the meditations of your heart to God today. It's an everyday thing. Faith isn't lived Sunday to Sunday or small group to small group or camp to camp. It's lived day in and day out. More than any other culture in the history of the world, you and I are, are wooed every day into this kind of living. We're taught and told every day that everything is about us. That everything exists for our pleasure and should be easy. I was listening to a theologian a few weeks ago being interviewed about COVID and about what it has revealed um, in the church and in the lives of followers of Jesus, particularly in the West. And he said something I, I think very striking. He said, you know, it's a, it, it is a mainly modern phenomenon to expect life to go well. And it is particularly a modern Western mindset that we expect year after year to get better, that we expect 
more and we expect abundance and we expect pleasure. That the history of the human race has not been that way. And and how many of you, how many of you who are over 60 in here today, we'll, we'll throw a bone, maybe 55 and up. How many of you would raise your hands this morning and say, Yes, life has gone as I planned and anticipated up to this point? Any hands? No, I wish we could see those online. It just doesn't happen. We set ourselves up for failure when we expect that. We set ourselves up for failure when we expect that. Colossians 3.5, the Apostle Paul writes this to the believers in the city of Colossae. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In other words, whatever flows from unredeemed, unregenerate hearts. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, obviously, this is a representative list of sin, not an exhaustive list. But what Paul is saying is lean actively in by the power of the Holy Spirit to your life and actively battle your sin. John Owen, one of the great Puritan writers, wrote uh, what is one of the most prominent books from that era of church history in the United States, and it, the, the title is striking. Uh, the title is On the Mortification of Sin in Believers. On the Mortification of Sin in Believers. And basically, it's a little booklet where John Owen is advocating for the fact that you and I are to be in the pursuit of holiness, grace-centered pursuit of holiness, all of our lives. All of our lives that we're, we're battling, we're submitting our nature and our person to God so that the transformation that God offers might come. Jonah seems not to be battling his sin, but in a sense to be battling God here. But God doesn't relent and he doesn't give up. Look at the last two verses. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. You know how many of the things that so consume our lives come up and they're really gone so fast in the scope of even our lifetimes. And then he leaves with this striking question, and this is how the book ends. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And the question left unstated there follows as this, should not the people of God be as concerned as God himself is about people far from him? We absolutely should. The gospel reveals God's heart and who he really is. He doesn't just love you and love me. He loves those that we could not imagine Loving and liking personally. He's pursuing them. It doesn't always make sense to us. Jeffrey Dahmer, some of you will remember, was one of the worst serial killers in American history. He killed um, 17 young men and boys between 1978 and 1991 in the Milwaukee area. Law enforcement caught up with him. He was prosecuted, sentenced to death. But by all appearances, had a radical 
genuine Christian conversion before he was killed by a fellow inmate in prison. Roy Ratcliffe was a former preacher who had devoted his life to prison ministry when he first met Jeffrey Dahmer, who he just called Jeff, like he would anyone else, and began to spend time with Jeff and talk to him about his sin and about the downward spiral of sin in the lives of human beings when it's left unchecked. And something began to stir in Dahmer's life. And there was this overwhelming moment of deep repentance and rebirth in his life. And everyone around him, from inmates to prison guards, testified that this man is not the one we've known up until this point. There's something different. This man is changed. Ratcliffe continued to minister with Dahmer and to meet with him for seven months as he watched him growing in this new faith in Christ and as he watched him wrestling with with coming to grips with who he was formerly and what God had offered him in his grace and mercy. When he was killed by a, a fellow in, inmate, Ratcliffe asked if he thought Dahmer was ready to meet God. And he said, oh, absolutely. He said, Jeff was ready. He said, I was not. Because he had become a friend that I was watching God change week in and week out. I think that s- story is just one of thousands and thousands and thousands that challenge what we think about the generosity of God's grace and His love. We just don't understand it. God almost always works in ways and in places and at times that we don't understand. Spurgeon said this, God is too good to be unkind, and He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace His hand, we must trust His heart. Some of you this morning, you're in places in your life right now where you cannot trace God's hand. You don't understand what He's doing or what He is perceivably not doing. And I just want to encourage you this morning as we seek to share the kind of heart that God has, that He declares Himself to have throughout the book of Jonah, not just for us, but for people far from Him. As we're challenged To have that same kind of heart, I just encourage you to do what Spurgeon said. When you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. Let's stand and pray.